0: I was struck by the fact that the Bible is cool. (laughs) It's profound, it's truth, it's wisdom, it's the Word of God, and it's just plain cool. Sometimes we need to remember that. This is just a cool book, it's just an amazing read. It is not... The the over our heads boring thing that I, I think sometimes I used to think it was when I was growing up. I started realizing, no, it was the pastor who was boring. The Bible's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I will do my best not to bore you tonight, but we come to Acts chapter 19, and this is <laughs> this is a remarkable chapter. Some of the things that take place here that we'll study and look at tonight, you're just you're gonna read them and, and mark my words. At some point tonight you're gonna go. That's just cool. So let's open up there. Acts chapter 19. Cool. See, already. (laughs) Acts chapter 19. Now we're going to spend an inordinate amount of time on the front end of this chapter and then a very short amount of time on the back end of the chapter simply because about the last half of the chapter is one story of a riot in Ephesus, and we'll get to that. It's interesting, but but the meat is, is really more in the first half, so we'll go through the whole thing together. But you may recall, just coming up to speed, to take a running start into chapter 19, at the end of Paul's second missionary journey, this is back in chapter 18, verses about 19 through 21, he came to Ephesus. He stopped off there long enough to dialogue in the synagogue, in fact, when you see that word reason, as we will see it again later tonight, it's uh, dialego in the Greek. Dialego, where we get our word dialogue. So when Paul is reasoning with the Jews, he's dialoguing with them about the truth of the Scriptures. He's answering their questions. He's interacting. He's talking with them, and, he is, and he's teaching. But he does this just long enough in Ephesus to wait for the ferry. As it were, his camel is in the ferry line. And uh, he's waiting to take a ship, actually, from Ephesus back across the sea, back to Caesarea. He will then go up to Jerusalem, fellowship with the, with the brothers and sisters there for a bit, and then make his way back to Antioch. Well, from Antioch, then he heads out on his third missionary journey. Which is where we are when we get to chapter 19, but he's already started. Chapter 18, verse 23, tells us that he crossed through Phrygia and Galatia, strengthening all the disciples. So he's done what he did in the second journey, he's now come again from Antioch on up through Syria, making his way, let's see if I'm on a map, making his way west uh, across the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, which is Asia, Turkey mostly today. And as he makes his way across there, he goes all the way across to the far west coast in Asia Minor to the town of Ephesus. And that's where we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country, that's through Asia, and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, when you meet new believers in Jesus, is that the first thing you ask? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe there's something missing here? Paul had to detect something to ask such a question of these disciples in Jesus. Let me just ask you guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? He, He detects something. I think right off the bat, something's not right. Something tips him off. Now I can only guess, but I think that he senses a wobbliness to their faith. Wobbly is a theological term, meaning shaky. He senses that their faith is not solid. There's perhaps a hesitation there. Some ambiguity to what they believe. Or I don't believe he would have asked at all, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You see, because the Holy Spirit brings confidence to faith. In fact, let me pause right now and ask the Holy Spirit to give me confidence as we continue on. Spirit of the living God, it is to you that we appeal because we know you are our teacher. You are the one who speaks words of truth into our heart, who takes, as Les was praying, the words from the page, Lord, and places them in our hearts. You're the one who seals them there. You're the one who grows us, who nurtures and matures our faith. It's, It's you. And so we come before You, Father, in the name of Jesus the Son, asking that Your Spirit would teach us now and give us, Lord, confidence in our faith as opposed to wobbliness. And we seek that confidence here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a frailty of uncertainty. A frailty of uncertainty. I think that's what Paul is noting here. Indecision. Insecurity, doubt, worry. Do you sense any of that in your life? Uncertainty about what the Lord is doing? Doubt as to whether or not He's engaged in your life at all? Insecurity? These are the things of belief without the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that in judgment. I'm saying that in invitation. That if you claim Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, a believer, a disciple, as Paul found this group of people, if you're a disciple but you're wobbly in your faith, well then perhaps you need to pray to receive the Holy Spirit. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Paul doubles down on this issue when he writes a letter to this church, to the church at Ephesus later on, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, to these Gentiles living in Ephesus, in Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, okay, so get that, they listened, they believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now if that doesn't give confidence to a person's faith, I'm not really sure what would. You listened, you believed, and then you were sealed by receiving the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. That is, once you receive the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, you have confidence, not frailty in your faith. You have an assurance that... Of your salvation. And I just want to remind you again, say again tonight, if you don't have the assurance of your salvation, perhaps you believe, but you never really received the Holy Spirit. You can receive Him tonight before we go. And start out in a life of confidence. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Are you confident? Confident in your faith? If not, I would ask, just as Paul did, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? Now what's interesting to me is these disciples have probably been led to faith by none other than Apollos. Now why would you say that? Well, go back up in chapter 18, just a few verses up in verse 25. It tells us of Apollos, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit... He was speaking and teaching. Now, he wasn't fervent in the Spirit, but he was fervent in Spirit. He was passionate. And he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then we're told he wanted to go across to Achaia, to Corinth. And so he does. My assumption and it's just Rick's assumption is that Apollos taught the disciples that Paul runs into at Ephesus right now but left to go to Corinth before the the teaching could be updated, could be corrected to be complete because all Apollos knew was the baptism of John he did not understand the baptism of Jesus what does that have to do with receiving the Holy Spirit Oh, read on Paul said, verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And that confirms it. Not that they lack the indwelling Holy Spirit. They, they do. But if they knew nothing of the Holy Spirit, then they couldn't possibly have been baptized into Jesus. They could only have been baptized into the baptism of of John, why? how can you say that? Listen, Jesus gave a clear formula to be followed with every baptism now i 'm not into formulas and i 'm not into ritual and liturgies, but Jesus spoke these words matthew twenty eight nineteen go therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them how Exactly, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you know there's a Holy Spirit. You may not fully understand how the Spirit of God works and interacts in your life, but you know if you're being baptized into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you're getting a three for three-for-one deal here. You're getting the whole presence of God. And you know the Spirit is part of that. If you have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit then you have not been baptized into the name of Jesus because to be baptized into Jesus is a Father, Son, Holy Spirit thing. And that's why we say what we say. It's not ritual. It's Jesus. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Les likes to do it three times. You know, so just if you're being baptized by Les, take a deep breath. (laughs) Father, Son, Holy Spirit. (laughs) Ah, You go. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But to be baptized into Jesus is to be baptized into the Spirit without the one you do not have, the other. Here is the formula for certainty. Get this down, Jesus gave it to us. In the name of the Father. That is certainty. Who by His grace and foreknowledge calls us. In the name of the Son who by His blood saves us and in the name of the Spirit, who by His power seals us. Father, Son, Spirit. Foreknowledge, blood, sealing. And it's not about right words, so much as right heart. Paul meets these disciples, and they don't really know. They believe in Jesus, they've heard about Jesus, but they've been, well watch this, Paul says, verse 3, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And there's the problem. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Now stop right there. I've, I've had this conversation now twice in the last week or so. Forgive me if I assume everybody knows certain things, but there are some things that came up, and I was like, oh, you didn't understand that. Let me explain. The difference between John's baptism and baptism into Jesus is very simple. John's baptism was about preparation. It was a baptism of repentance. Repentance for readiness. Preparation for the coming Messiah. John's baptism was rooted in the mikvah. Okay, do we all understand that? The Jewish mikvah was there a long time before Jesus came along, before John started baptizing, and then Jesus baptized. The Jewish mikvah was the purification bath. That we've talked about in here that every Jew would have to go down into the mikvah, dunk himself, submerge himself completely, and then come back out the other side before entering the temple. And those Jewish mikvahs, the archaeological finds, are all around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The mikvah bath. And if you go down to Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there was a community of, of Jews who lived there who wrote the scrolls. And there are numbers of mikvah baths throughout the archaeological finds there. So the idea of Baptism by immersion, by the way, was there a long time before even John started baptizing. When John started baptizing in the Jordan River, the Jewish people weren't like, what's this weird new thing he's doing? They were like, oh, it's a purification ritual. He's calling us to get purified in readiness for the coming Messiah. That's what Jewish baptism was. And if you were a Gentile and wanted to become a Jew, part of the process was the mikvah. A proselyte would be baptized before becoming a Jew. So John's baptism was nothing new, nothing flashy. It was just that he was baptizing in preparation and the Jews flooded out to him because they realized what was going on. They understood it was about purification, repentance for readiness, Messiah was coming. Jesus comes along and fulfills baptism. Look at it this way. It's just like Passover. Passover was there for century upon century before Jesus came along and fulfilled Passover, giving it its ultimate meaning that the, the bread and the wine was a picture. And from now on will be my body and my blood, Jesus said. In the same way, Christian baptism baptism into Jesus is a fulfillment of eons of the Jewish mikvah. That you are now baptized into Christ. Being immersed not into repentance for readiness, but into acceptance that Messiah is come. Not that He is coming, but that He has come. And that He indwells us. It goes straight to the heart. And this is what these disciples had not learned, did not understand. And before Paul even deals with the Holy Spirit, he asks about the Spirit first, but then he has to back it up a bit. He realizes they they haven't even been baptized. Not into Jesus. So let's fix that problem. He goes back to the formula. To the very certain work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized. I love the immediacy of the obedience. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying there were in all about twelve men. Note the order. It's important here. Faith is first. They realized they hadn't been baptized into Jesus. They didn't have a full understanding. But the moment it was explained to them, they did it. Faith was there. Faith comes first. Then, the outward expression of that faith, by obedience in baptism, they get baptized. Wait, they got rebaptized? No, they got baptized. Because the first time was not the same as the second. And so, they get baptized in obedience, and right there, I believe, personally, right then, as they went into the waters of baptism, the Spirit indwelled and sealed them for salvation. I'm not saying baptism saved them. As a matter of fact, I could say they were, they were saved prior to that. Their faith would save them. Faith in the grace of God is always what saves us. But when they went down into the waters of baptism, Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you're uncertain, if you're not sure, the Bible tells us you will receive the indwelling Spirit. If not before, if not after, in baptism you will receive the indwelling of the Spirit of God. But here's what's interesting. Then Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Are you tracking with me? Indwelling, the Spirit comes in them to dwell, seals them. But when Paul lays his hands on them after the fact... The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. How do you know it's different? Well, there in verse 6, note this, He laid His hands upon them, and the Holy Spirit came on them. The word there, on, is is that Greek preposition, epi. And it means upon. And every time you see that preposition used, referring to the Holy Spirit, it is the outpouring. It is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Actually, we didn't term that John the Baptist, and then Jesus called it that. The coming upon of the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's the same word Jesus used to describe the dunamis. That is the power of the Spirit. He said in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Epi. Here, Paul lays his hands on them, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Epi. Same word. And they are empowered. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 2, verse 3 that fulfills what Jesus promised. There appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on Epi upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, wait a minute. They had already been filled with the Holy Spirit. The apostles in Acts chapter 2. Had already been given, they had already received the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. Read John 20. Where Jesus says to them, receive my Spirit, and breathes on them. So they had already received the Spirit. What happened at Pentecost was not receiving the Spirit. It was the outpouring of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. At work in them. Now upon them. The Spirit's in them. Now he comes upon them. Peter refers to this very thing when he's when he's talking um, about Cornelius and what happened in Acts chapter ten. He says in Acts eleven fifteen, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. And you may recall Cornelius and his family suddenly started to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit having come upon them, they were empowered, which God did completely out of order. How dare He? Do what he wants to do. He did it out of order to show Peter that he approved of the salvation of Cornelius. He came upon Cornelius in a very tangible representation of power so that Peter could go, oh, Gentiles too. Right? But Peter looking back at that says, yeah, the Spirit fell upon them just like He fell upon us at Pentecost. Just like right here, Paul lays his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. But why did Paul have to lay his hands on them? What's that all about? The same reason. Now listen to me. The same reason why The priests had to stand in the Jordan first. Huh? Remember the story in Acts or sorry, Joshua chapter three, verses eight through sixteen. The Lord says, I want you to have the priests pick up the Ark of the Covenant, those who are assigned the carrying of the Ark, and carry it, and I I want them to walk into the Jordan River. Now he had parted the Red Sea for them forty years prior. I want them to walk into the Jordan. When they walk into the Jordan, I will cause it to pile up in a heap so then the people can walk across on dry land. But he said, no, this time what you need to do is you need to go in first. Why is that? Because sometimes you got to get your feet wet. They had to get their feet wet. It's obedience that opens the heart to the indwelling of the Spirit, to the outpouring of the Spirit. It's obedience. you got to obey me. Show me you will do what I ask you to do. Show me your faith. And so the priest picked up the ark, walked into the Jordan, got their ankles wet, the bottoms of their robes would be soaked, and then all of a sudden, the water just goes down, 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 dries up, and then the people walk across. In the same way, these 12 disciples needed to be baptized before receiving the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Why? Obedience. And I'll say it again. Obedience opens the heart to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Obedience is it's the critical factor in our faith. And the Ephesians 12, these 12 guys were obedient. They don't argue theology. They don't argue doctrine or tradition with Paul. They don't say, hey, that's not what Apollos told us. No, what do they do? They dive in. They immediately get baptized. And then the power of the Spirit is expressed through the speaking of, uh, in tongues and prophesying. What is, what is the measure of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What, what is the measure? What's the proof that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Is it speaking in tongues? Some would say so. Some traditions would say, unless you speak in tongues, you haven't been baptized in the Spirit, and obviously you're not a Christian. I reject that wholeheartedly. Well then, is it prophesying? Is it gifts of healing? Is it it miracles? Is it the ability to do things you couldn't previously do? What is it that manifests? Because remember, Paul saw something was missing in these guys. Something's not there. Have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? So what is the ultimate manifestation of the baptism of the Spirit? How can you know? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And pick it up in verse 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Repeating what we already talked about on Sunday in verse 27. It says, now you are Christ's body. And individually members of it. I love that connection. And he says, and God is appointed in the church, first apostles... Second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love. I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I used to love watching the gong show when I was a kid. (laughs) Remember that show? The gong show. It's like, a, if you, those of you who don't know about the gong show, you missed out on one of the epic moments of the, of the previous generation. Truly the height of our of our uh, intellect in those days. The gong show was basically an on, on-screen talent show. And people would come out there, and if they had no talent, the judges would immediately grab a big mallet and go, GONG! I thought about doing that for our worship team auditions last week, but I was, I was told that might be inappropriate. <laughs> You're a gong, man. If you don't have love, you are a gong. You open your mouth, gong. That's all you got. Just a big noise maker. The greatest measure of the Spirit in a person's life is love. Do you want to know if a person is filled with the Spirit? Watch how they love. Look at how they interact with people. Look at their draw to ministry. Watch how they love. Galatians 5.22 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love. Oh, I know, and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Why? Because love is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Love is the deal. There are those who think, and I would lean this direction, that the fruit of the Spirit, those nine different fruits that are listed in, in Galatians five twenty-two and 23, that love is the primary fruit and the following eight just are outflows of love. Those who love have joy. And where there's love, there is peace. A loving person is patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle. A person who loves has self-control. And there's no law against love. Because love is the fulfillment of the law. So back to Acts chapter 19. Love is the key. The manifestation of the Spirit, the outpouring, the baptism of the Spirit should most definitely be seen in love above and beyond any other thing. And yeah, there's tongues and there's prophecy and there's healings and there's miracles and there's administrations. That's a fun gift. You don't know, see people up at the altar every Sunday morning going, Oh Lord, please, the gift of administrations. Helps. I want helps, Lord. It's love. Desire the most excellent way. Which is to love. Well, in Acts 19, verse 8. So these these twelve men get straightened out. They get baptized, sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and now they're prophesying. They're speaking in tongues. They're on their way. There were about twelve men in all. Verse 8, And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Again, reasoning. Dialoguing in the synagogue. Dialego. He was dialoguing with them, speaking their language. Man, I love this. Paul goes into the synagogue and he is speaking to the heart of the Hebrew people. Well, where do you get that? Well, what's he reasoning with them about there in verse eight? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdom. You want to touch the Hebrew heart? Talk about the kingdom. Psalm 2, verse 6, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's there in Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 a child will be born to us a son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father Prince of Peace there will be no end of the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. and my friends the child born to us did not stay in the manger he is king The kingdom. Messiah the king. Daniel chapter 2 verse 44, the prophet said in those days, the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, and it will itself endure forever. Micah the prophet, chapter 4, verse 8, says, "...as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come." He's talking about Jerusalem. "...even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem." Go to the Hebrew prophets. Study the Hebrew scriptures as we have here at the bridge. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. You want to plug, you want to open up a Jew's ear, you want to get a Jewish person's attention, talk about the kingdom. Because that's everything God promised. And any Jewish person today who believes in their prophets perks up when you start to talk about the kingdom. And then after 2,000 years of kingdom promises from Abraham to Moses to David through the prophets, Jesus comes along. And at the very start of His ministry, Matthew four seventeen, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How could He say that? It was 2,000 years ago. Yeah, but but the king was there. And when the king's present, the kingdom's there. The kingdom is at hand. Matthew 6.10, He prayed, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. You think God's not going to answer that prayer? Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, Seek first His kingdom. Matthew 24.14, He says, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And Revelation 1.6 tells us He made us to be a kingdom. Priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, if you say kingdom, especially in Paul's day, you come into the synagogue and start talking about the kingdom, you had a group of attentive ears. You got the attention of the Jewish people. And so he's in there and he's dialoguing and he's reasoning, but he's talking about the kingdom. Verse 9. But... When some were becoming hardened with diso- and disobedience, speaking evil of the way, that is the church, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples' reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, who I just like to call Rex. <laughs> and this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and, and Greeks. Tyrannus. Tyrannus, we know from history, was a philosopher of Ephesus. He had a school of philosophy in Ephesus. And so what Paul very deftly did was when the synagogue wouldn't hear it, he withdrew, took the disciples, and rented space from this Tyrannus. Tyrannus is not mentioned anywhere else. He's not a believer, a follower, as far as we know. Paul just cut a deal with him to use his school of philosophy. Why? Because from about 11 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon, no one was using it. What are you talking about, Rick? In Asia, especially during certain months of the year, it gets oppressively hot. And from about 11 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon, people don't do much. Or at least in those days, didn't do much. We know historically looking back, schools, businesses, things closed down from just before noon till 3 or 4 in the afternoon. Because it was so hot, no one felt like doing anything. It was even said about Ephesus that more people were awake at 1 a.m. than at 1 p.m. Because they were all home sleeping. In the heat of the day. And so Paul realizes here's an open space from 11 to 4. Nobody's using it. Hey, Tyrannus, you mind if I rent this from you? Borrow this from you? Can we use this space so I can continue my teachings? Uh, <laughs> if you want to, feel free. So Paul begins now training his disciples in the school of Tyrannus. Interesting. Do you see a pattern? This continues throughout the book of Acts and it is exactly as Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 1.16, that the Gospel would go to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And every city Paul came to, he went first to the synagogue. He gave the Jewish people first shot, first chance to hear the Gospel and if it was rejected, he would withdraw then and deal with those who would take the Word, who would hear it. Which is how he ends up in the school of a philosopher teaching the truth. If a Jew has ears to hear, wonderful. If not, the Gospel continues to pick up the Gentiles. But I wonder what it was about the kingdom, since we know that's what Paul was reasoning, what Paul was arguing, what was it about the kingdom that hardened these particular Jews? And I'm going to make a guess on this one. I think it was expectations. That neither the kingdom nor the king looked anything like they thought it should or would. Not at first. They were looking for Jesus in His second coming. They did not expect Him in His first coming. And so when Paul comes preaching the kingdom and preaching the Messiah and starts to talk about Jesus, Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He begins to share about Jesus and then he leads up and says, but this Jesus you may have heard was crucified. Whoa, wait a minute. That's not royal. That's not kingly. You're telling me my Messiah's dead? No, no, no. He rose from the dead and returned to heaven. He's going to come back and he's going to rule and reign. You know what? Get out of the synagogue. That is not what they expected. (laughs) Jesus would say in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. didn't mean His kingdom wouldn't be in this world, it's just His kingdom is not of this world, is not like this world, will not look like the presidential elections in America. (laughs) I don't do things that way. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so I would not be handed over to the Jews, he said. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And Pilate, you may recall, this is John 18.37, said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. But they didn't expect him that way. The suffering servant. Let me ask you, what are your kingdom expectations? What do you expect out of God? Expect out of Jesus? What do you expect Him to do In your world. Stay aligned with the expectations of the King and you will be at peace. But expect Him to do other or be other than He said He would be and you will be in conflict. Expect what He says to expect. And right now what He tells us to expect is He's coming again. So live life with that expectation. Verse 10. So this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. i got to give you a quick correction. I mentioned that Paul was longer in Corinth anywhere else than than anywhere else on his missionary journeys. He he was up to this point. So in a way, I was right. (laughs) Paul was a year and a half at Corinth. He had not stayed that long anywhere else up to that point. But now when he comes to Ephesus, he is there twice as long. Right, right here it says two years. He's going to be there another year. He actually is in Ephesus for three solid years teaching the Word of God, speaking of the kingdom. And Luke tells us there in verse 10, All who lived in Asia heard the Word. Now this was often Paul's pattern come into a major metropolitan area, begin preaching the word there, and then send it out. And the word spread all over Asia. As a matter of fact, it spread through a common postal route. Because not only were there these 12 disciples, but a great church grew up formed there in Ephesus. And then that church would send and spread to six other cities, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philly, and Laodicea. Is that six? Yep. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philly, and Laodicea, the churches of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it started in Ephesus and spread along, again, this is a postal route in Asia Minor to all these cities. Paul was three years in Ephesus doing what? Spreading the Gospel. Not just in Ephesus, but all over Asia. Now watch this, verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles. The word miracle there, for you Bible students, note this, it's dunamis. Extraordinary power by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. So, you understand why some of those televangelists started saying, Send us a napkin and we'll pray over it and send it back. Or just send us some money and we'll send you a prayer cloth. There was a big, big difference between the prayer cloths of today and the handkerchiefs of Paul. Let me explain. First of all, who was performing these miracles? God was. Jesus was. The Bible is very clear. God was performing extraordinary power by the hands of Paul. Paul was just the vessel. Paul was just the instrument being used by the Lord for mighty and powerful work. Handkerchiefs? The handkerchiefs were basically bandanas. The Greek word for them is sudarion. And that Suderion were cloths that were used for wiping sweat from the face. Or for swathing the face of a corpse. Bandanas. Face cloths. Handkerchiefs is probably a good translation. Now, remember the heat in Ephesus? There are several commentators who have made statements about the fact that Paul probably... Would wrap a bandana or one of these Suderion, these handkerchiefs, around his head while he was teaching to keep the perspiration from dripping into his eyes. He'd take it off, drop it aside, and someone would pick it up and take it to the sick, and they would be healed by a stinky, sweaty snot rag. I'm not trying to denigrate scripture here, gang. Understand, it was a plain, sweaty handkerchief. It was a headband. There was nothing special about it. Sweaty bandanas carried off to heal people. And what about the aprons? Well, the apron, that must have been more priestly, right? No, it's the word semikintheon. And the semikintheon were work smocks. It's what a carpenter would wear to keep the dust and the grime away. For Paul, as a tent maker, he would have a work smock that he could wrap on when he was doing his work to try and keep his robes, his clothes more clean. And he would take this off and set it aside and they'd pick it up and take it off and sick people were being healed. It's remarkable. And Paul didn't charge anyone for any of these. By the way, remember Peter's shadow? Same thing. Back in Acts chapter 5 verse 15 they carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on any one of them and the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all being healed if Peter walked by and his shadow fell over a person lying in the street they would jump up on their feet and be healed. That's incredible. That's incredible. And what did did James say that we are to do if if we desire healing? He said in James 5.14, Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now I'm thankful that we anoint with oil and not with sweaty rags. Yeah, Glenn just got back from the gym and we've got his shirt here. Anyone looking for healing? (laughs) We put so much emphasis in the substance and it's not about the substance of the things. It's about the substance of faith. Think this through with me just a second longer. Peter's shadow. What's that? Paul's sweatbands and smocks. Extra virgin olive oil. (laughs) Which I read in the news, by the way, that just because it says extra virgin doesn't mean that it is. You could get bad olive oil, so be on the lookout, you you organites. Paul's shadow, or Peter's shadow, Paul's sweatband and smocks, extra virgin olive oil, and the hem of the robe of Jesus. There's another one. If she could just touch the hem of his robe, remember the story. The woman who had been bleeding for 12 years tried, spent all her money on every doctor she could find. Finally, Jesus comes to town and she thinks, if I can just touch that, that, the seat seat of his talit, that is the corner. If I can get my hands on that. So the Jews saw that as the place of authority. If I can grab hold of that, then I can be healed. She touched it. Jesus goes, hold on. All right. Who touched me? I love the story because Peter's like, dude. There's like 50 people all around you right now. What do you mean, who touched you? I felt power go out from me, he said. What do all these things have in common? Oil, sweatbands, smocks, shadows, and the hem of Jesus' robe. What do they all have in common? One thing, gang, they are triggers for faith. Trigger on a gun doesn't do anything except trigger the firing mechanism to send the bullet, right? It's just a trigger otherwise. Nothing powerful or impressive in the trigger. Triggers of faith, points of contact for belief. The woman believed. That's what. In fact, what did Jesus say? Luke eight forty eight. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He doesn't say, "Whoa, you touched the power spot on my robe. I didn't think anybody knew about it." No. He said, "Your faith has made you well." How did the sick people get healed when Peter's shadow went by? Faith. They believed that Jesus was at work. How did sweaty bands from Paul's head make people well? Because they believed that God was at work in this man. They believed in the name of Jesus. It is not the substance of the things. It is the substance of faith. It is faith, plain and simple. It's always been faith. It always will be faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please it. And God is always trying to generate our faith. It's not in the price paid to a televangelist for a prayer cloth, king. It is faith in Jesus Christ, which is an expectation that the king is going to show up to heal. One of my favorite nuances or allusions in the Lord of the Rings trilogy Allusions to Christ. There are many in that trilogy that J.R.R. Tolkien intended. One of them was that the king was a healer. The king was a healer. The books go into it far more than the movies do. But the king would go into the houses of healing after battle and the king would be able to heal people. We have a king who heals. We have a king who is the great physician. A king in whom our faith is planted. In whom we trust. And you might say, well, then why don't we see more healings like this today? Why can't we use Glenn's sweaty shirt? I'm sorry, Glenn. I shouldn't keep going. Why can't we take a a, a napkin touched by one of the shepherds and, and send it off and see someone healed? Why don't we see this kind of power right now? How about long and hard about this? And honestly, I don't know. I've come up with different answers over the years. You know, one of them is we have the Word. They didn't have the Word. They didn't, they didn't have the Scriptures. They didn't have Moses and the prophets and the fulfillment seen in the New Testament to study and to know and to understand and to grow in faith like we have. Possibly. Other people like to, you know feel guilty about our lack of faith today that's the problem we just don't believe enough I don't maybe maybe that's a problem in the western church doesn't seem to be a problem in many of the third world nations that are seeing fantastic miracles happen all the time but the point is gang why don't we see more healings I don't know maybe it has to do with our expectations Maybe it has to do with the fact that we've just worked ourselves out of it. We don't expect it to happen. All I know for certain, and I can tell you this with absolute and absolute truth, is that He, our King, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. That's what the Bible says. I know that Hebrews 13.8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So I can tell you this, our great king, the healing king, has not changed.